All right, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And this time what I want to do is just, again, in a brief session here, just kind of offer some uh, helpful guidance for intimacy in our marriage relationship. And again, remember from our review back in Genesis chapter 2, we saw from the very institution of the marriage relationship when God said that the man and his wife would be naked and unashamed. It's evident in God's word that uh, sexual desire and sexual expression is something that was created by God himself. And I know I'm stating the obvious there, but it's important to remember that when it comes to sex and sexual activity, that God designed that. Uh, God gave the desire for it. Uh, God gave us the capacity and even directly tells us in the word of God to engage in that as a husband and a wife. So again, it's intended uh, that a man and woman in the marriage relationship be able to experience that as a gift from God, something that's a part of their relationship. And sex, what I see really scripturally, is kind of given for, in essence, three purposes. One being enjoyment, uh, two being marital or relational bonding, and three being the obvious of procreation or creating a family or children. And important to remember as well as we talk about this together that uh, sex came about before sin ever entered the world. And there's a reason why I'm stating that. Uh, The Bible said a man and his wife shall be naked and unashamed, the two shall become flesh. And that was all God's idea and instituted by God who is holy and who is wholesome and wants the absolute best. And there was nothing about that that was tainted or defiled, or in any way sinful, or dirty, or polluted. It was only after sex was instituted by God in marriage in Genesis chapter 2 that then when sin enters into the world, sin does what sin does to every area of life. It pollutes it, and it perverts it, and it distorts it in its original design. So I'm emphasizing that to say that sex is not something that's dirty, It's not something that's wrong or should be taboo even among God's people. It's not something we should ever feel guilty about or awkward in regards to. And if you have in your life, as sometimes married people do, let's say, for example, uh, as the result of premarital sexual activity, whether with the person you're actually married to now, uh, or perhaps premarital sexual activity prior to being in a marriage relationship— Uh, you may find there may be a dynamic at times where there can be attached in your mind an aspect of guilt or something wrong or inappropriate in the sexual expression. For example, when two people have sex outside of the boundary of marriage, because God's given us a conscience, and that is shameful, and that is wrong, when people are sexually active outside of a marriage relationship, I don't care who you are, you feel a measure of kind of guilt in your conscience. You kind of know what you're doing is wrong. Whether you're 14 or whether you're 40, if you know you're not married to the person, something in your conscience testifies that's wrong, you kind of feel shameful, a little bit you know, awkward and embarrassed. Well, that's because God wants us to realize that a man and his wife can engage, and that's not to be shameful, but it is shameful when two people participate in sex outside of marriage. Now, that being said, what can tend to happen sometimes, and I say this just from you know, interacting with couples over the years, is sometimes there can kind of be attached in the memory bank, you know, whatever, where somebody translates those old feelings from premarital sexual activity with the person they're married to when they knew it was wrong and they felt bad about it, or maybe their sexual experiences with other people before they were married, 
And they kind of take that and they translate that into their marriage relationship and they find themselves, whether admitting it or vocalizing it or not, kind of feeling a little bit like awkward and like something's wrong with sex or it's dirty or maybe they shouldn't be able to enjoy themselves. And there's this kind of reservation and difficulty that goes on. Look, if that's the case, be careful that you don't translate past ideas or old feelings and experiences into your marriage relationship. Because in marriage, sex is right. It's important. It's essential. Sexual activity is something that's wholesome and God-given, and there's nothing wrong about it. It's something that God wants a couple to actually be experiencing and expressing. So uh, important to realize, and uh, what I want to do is, as we look at 1 Corinthians 7, make just a few observations here. But before I read 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 to 5, which is kind of what I want to kind of zone in on there. I just want to say first and foremost, as I said at the beginning, that sexual expression is not something that's just for procreation. You know, even sometimes, you know, Christians that want to seem spiritual or holy, you know, kind of almost give the impression like, well, I mean, it's for procreation, but you know, no, it's for pleasure too. It's actually intended by God for pleasure, for enjoyment. In fact, let me read to you Proverbs chapter 5. This is the word of God, what God says. He says, regarding the sexual expression of a man and a woman, drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets, having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer and a graceful doe. Ready for this? Let her breasts satisfy you always, and may you always be captivated, the idea is intoxicated, with her love. Again, if you read the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament, the passion that's described there of kissing and embracing and touching and all that's there, I mean, the Song of Solomon is a wonderful manual right within the Bible in regards to cultivating intimacy. You know, I have a book that somebody gave to me years and years ago, even on this very subject. It was a book actually written by a Christian doctor, you know, from the aspect of sex from a medical standpoint as a Christian. And the title of the book was called Intended for Pleasure. And the crux of the book, again, uh, was basically him from a medical standpoint and as a Christian saying, look, I can tell you as a medical professional God created our bodies in a way where it's evident that the sexual encounter was intended to be pleasurable. And what he, in a sense, was indicating is, look, the very chemicals that are within our body that make us yearn or desire sexual activity, uh, the very fact that the areas of our bodies, the genital areas on a man and a woman have pleasure sensations and the nerve endings, and they do, that's there by design. God put that there so that it would be something that would be enjoyable. And so if God created our bodies that way, that was the crux of his book. It was intended by God for pleasure. It's not something to feel that it's wrong or something that in some way we should be uncomfortable with. It was intentional, and it's intended to be a bonding, enjoyable thing for the couple. So the Bible does give us some instruction regarding sexual expression. 1 Corinthians 7, let me just read verses 1 uh, through 5. It says, now concerning the things which you've wrote to me, they must have asked Paul some questions, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality or sin, let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. 
Verse 3 to 5, this is the key. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Let me also read to you those same verses, 3 to 5, in in two other translations that give a little bit more light to the full picture. Let me read two other translations of that. One translation says it this way, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Another translation renders the same verses this way. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body unto her husband. The husband gives authority over his body unto his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time. You know, one thing is clear in marriage, distinct from any other relationship, one distinguishing mark in marriage is the sexual component. Again, it's something uniquely reserved for the husband and the wife. So married people clearly are supposed to engage in some capacity of routine, sexual intimacy as a couple, whatever that looks like in their relationship, whatever is mutually agreed upon by the couple. Married people, as I said earlier, are not supposed to live like single people. Married people are supposed to live like married people, sharing a bed and sharing physical intimacy to some degree, recognizing it's a part of the marriage relationship. Now, in regards to verses 3 to 5 here in 1 Corinthians 7, let me just make a few brief observations from these verses that I think are kind of just evident right on the surface. And the first one would be this, is that sexual activity should be motivated by a spirit of servanthood. Sexual activity should be motivated by a spirit of servanthood, not self-gratification. The idea that sexual activity is something where I'm motivated for my own self-gratification comes from a sinful worldly idea of people who are engaging in sex in the wrong way out in the world, where it's very selfish. I want to say these things or interact with this person because my end goal is I want to utilize them to fulfill my sexual desires. That's not God's mentality towards the sexual experience. It should be focused foremost on unselfishly trying to be a servant and to seek to be servant-hearted towards my spouse. And again, you can tell from the verses, not neglecting their needs. That's the implication here. He says, render affection to the other person. Your body's not your own. You should be yielding yourself as in a servant-hearted way to try and serve your spouse, to try and please your spouse. That Again, the whole motive there is a servant-hearted attitude. Again, as Christians, we've talked much about it already. We're to be directed like Jesus by things like love and servanthood and seeking to be a giving individual. Remember the verse? I've mentioned it many times already. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. 
Can I say that should apply to every area of our life? And I would say, bring that attitude into your bedroom. I did not come to be served, but to serve. That is, I want to have a servant-hearted spirit in love to seek to serve my spouse in the area of sexual intimacy. And I'll tell you, if you properly do the first, the second will happen. If you engage and seek to serve your spouse by blessing them, fulfilling them, the end result in sexual expression is the secondary thing will happen. You will be served as well. It'll end up being something enjoyable for you also in the process. So again, the indication of the passage when we get some instruction here in 1 Corinthians 7 is that servant-hearted attitude even in the sexual life that, that kind of leads us to the place where we're seeking to yield ourselves to our spouse, that that's our attitude in this area of our relationship, to share yourself with them and actually look for how can I fulfill them? How can I please them? How can I bring loving satisfaction to them and to be kindly motivated to discover those things? What do they enjoy? What pleases them? What arouses them? What fulfills them in this area of our marriage relationship? Making sure you're respectful, even in the activity of sexual expression, of making sure you're fulfilling their needs and not just looking to get your needs met. And that even in the activities of sexual expression as they unfold themselves, that you're being conscious of the fact that, you know what, I want to make sure that their needs are met as well and make sure that they are fulfilled. And sometimes that includes, of course, being able, when you're not in the mood, if they're in the mood, yielding yourself as a servant and saying no to yourself for the sake of serving them if they would be in the mood in that area. Now, let me say, that works both ways. Because saying no to yourself also indicates sometimes saying no to yourself if you desire something and perhaps your spouse does not desire at the moment or does not desire to do something. It's not always about, well, I'm in the mood, so whether you're in the mood or not, please me, a servant attitude. Maybe sometimes you are in the mood and they're not, and love would say, I'll deny myself. Uh, you know, I, I can I can wait, or I don't need to be intimate at the moment. And so this works both ways. And let me just say, because I think sometimes it's misconveyed, what I think First Corinthians seven is not teaching. When he says here in our verses, the wife doesn't have authority over her body, but the husband does, and the husband doesn't have authority over his body, the wife does. Don't deprive one another. These verses are not indicating. And they're not something that should be wrongly twisted, that in some way, God's saying that we should be able to selfishly utilize our spouse's body. Well, you don't have authority over your own body. The Bible says it right there. Your body belongs to me. And and, and this kind of, again, selfish mannerism where we are unsensitive and almost sometimes selfishly, perhaps maybe wanting to like almost utilize our spouse physically to gratify ourselves continually in a way that is just not considering their own interests as well as considering my interests as well and these verses are in no way saying that we should demand authority to have what we want or disregard the interests of our spouse that if we want to participate in a certain activity well hey your body belongs to me so you have to cooperate or coercing them to do something that they're not comfortable with let me just say that's not loving right that's not considerate that's not servant-hearted that's not humble And I do not think that God would ever want somebody to be abused or utilized in that way, even in a marriage relationship. So we need to be careful. The indication here is not about 
we get to control our spouse. That's not what the verses are saying and control their body for our interest. What the verses are saying is seek to give yourself to your spouse. Try and intentionally be a giving person. Try and fulfill them and satisfy them as a way of expressing love towards them in the marriage relationship. Again, sexual activity should be a mutual giving where two people willingly participate. And sometimes it's loving, as I said, to even say no to yourself if it's something that perhaps your spouse is not in the mood for, or at times to say no to yourself if maybe you want to do something and maybe your spouse isn't comfortable with that practice, then maybe you need to be willing to say no to yourself out of love and courtesy toward them. Now, in light of saying that, let me also say this. There's nothing directly addressed in Scripture specifically that I can find anyway in regard to what couples can and can't do in their intimate physical activity. And a lot of times that becomes a question, even for a pastor on occasion. You know, well, what is okay and what isn't okay? And all I can tell you is that's something that each couple has to personally figure out as a matter of conviction. Uh, there is nothing that I see specifically in Scripture indicating what a husband and a wife can and can't do as far as their practices in their intimate relationship. A couple needs to discover what works for them, what they enjoy, what they are comfortable with before the Lord and with one another, what activities and practices, what frequency looks like. Get that question too. Well, how often? Well, that's dependent upon a couple. <laughs> that's dependent upon you figuring out as a husband and a wife what works being mutually respectful and loving to one another and making sure you're being sensitive to the Holy Spirit in this area, even as you are in every other area of your life, that you're never pushing a boundary in some way or crossing a line, that no one is uncomfortable and in a sense finding themselves not enjoying something that God intended to be a wonderful expression of love and enjoyment to bond a couple as they share something with another person that makes something just very, you know, unifying for them that's their special thing in the privacy of their own personal and intimate life. Which, which kind of brings me to my, my final point, which is this. Communication is important. I cannot emphasize to you enough how communication is vital to be put into practice in your sexual life and something that you would keep constantly trying to grow in. We as people talk about everything else. And as husbands and wife, we talk about everything else, money, raising children. We talk about everything. But for some reason, I don't know what it is, some reason it's almost like a lot of times couples feel like it's taboo to talk about sex, to communicate openly and honestly with one another. And people kind of shut down. And it's kind of like, okay, well, that's something we do with the lights out and we don't talk about it. And we just, we just kind of, that just happens. Listen, I want to encourage you, communicate. I'm dead serious. I want to encourage you to realize communication is essential for your intimate life. Do you notice even in this verse here, he says, don't deprive one another except for what? Consent. What does that imply? You've talked about it. The indication there is communication, that there's an aspect of communication in the area of intimacy. So, Look, communication is essential for your romantic and your sexual and your intimate experiences because it allows you to have a better understanding of what each other is thinking. So you're not assuming things or trying to read each other's minds or inadvertently hurting one another in some way because you're not being sensitive or respectful. 
or you're not aware, or maybe you're embarrassed because you're not talking about something, or you know something's awkward because you're just not discussing it. I can't encourage you enough as you begin to realize and get beyond it's not taboo and communicate about your intimate life, it will bring a tremendous enhancement because you'll begin to discover things that are valuable and helpful to know. You'll begin to understand what you do and don't enjoy and, and, and you know, begin to understand each other's desires and needs and better meet each other's desires and needs. You'll have a better ability as you communicate during the process and afterwards and so forth and let it just be an open running conversation how to better fulfill one another instead of just awkwardly wondering I wonder what he's thinking. I wonder what she's thinking. Well, you're married. You don't have to do that. My best intimacy tip, talk, talk, talk. Let's stand together. Let's pray.